Chapter 9 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 The Pompous. Not being able to find what we wanted in the way of horses at Carcarañal, we again took train to Cañada de Gomez, another camp town a few leagues higher up the line. We found this to be a typical little camp settlement, the mushroom growth of a few years, new and prosperous with an astonishing amount of civilization too, considering where it is. We entered the fonda or general store where the camp man comes down to buy all he wants, groceries, powder, and especially caña, I fear. The proprietor, Schnack, is an old Dutchman, a sailor whose long service in British ships accounts for his perfect knowledge of our tongue. He put an upper room at our disposal to sleep in. He could not feed us, only lodge and drink us, he said, but there was a restaurant at the railway station opposite, so that mattered little. A wonderfully cosmopolitan continent this South America is. Having left our Dutchman for the restaurant over the way, we found the proprietor of this was an old French soldier of the Garde Imperiale and a maitre de scream. Then we went to the barber to be shaved and found that he was a citizen of Naples. His razors, I imagine, came out of the torture chambers of the Inquisition. This is indeed a very civilized little town. We not only have our restaurant and our barber, but also our judge. Also a half-finished church. This, the common condition of a camp town church. For the priests, after squeezing a certain amount of dollars from the pious, start building on an over-ambitious scale, run short of funds, and then comes a standstill in the work until the little dribbits of offerings enable further progress. There is also a prison here, this being an imposing pair of stocks, considerately placed under the shade of the pretty Sinasina trees in front of a grog shop. The courthouse, where justice is dispensed, and which is also the residence of the judge, belongs to friend Schnack. The government is a bad paymaster, and our host tells me that after many vain applications for arrears of rent, he has been obliged to evict the poor judge and mistress justice to seek a roof elsewhere. Peaceful and civilized though this little place appears, the untamed Indian tribes are not so far off. It is now but twelve years since the Indians made a raid here and carried away ten thousand head of cattle and many women, for the aboriginal has the good taste to prefer the white to the dusky beauties of his own race. But the camps of the white men have advanced many leagues further into the Indian territory since that time, and Cañada de Gomez has little to fear now. Schnack's was a type of the regular camp town store. Loafing about the bar, drinking caña, gin, and cocktails was the usual crowd from the camp. Natives in their picturesque dress and English estancieros, these many of them in the native costume also, but mostly in shirt sleeves, top boots, broad felt sombreros and hide belts with six shooters and knives stuck ostentatiously therein. The Englishman of the province of Santa Fe rather affects this brigand-like get-up, but I believe there is good reason for it, as there are no few bad characters about, and the hand of justice being almost impotent hereabouts, each one must look out for himself. When the men standing at the bar heard of our proposed ride, they, of course, overwhelmed us with advice. 
when in reply to their queries we said that we thought of riding through cordoba to tucuman first one a yankee said take train from here to cordoba and commence your ride from there there is nothing to interest you between here and that city said another a britisher no ride from here to cordoba that will be all very well to go beyond that will be madness you will lose yourselves and die of thirst in the salinas salt deserts where there is no water salt and cacti and sun salt and sun and cacti nothing more said a third a native my advice is don't go at all it is too hot to ride this time of year what pleasure can you find in galloping through the eternal salt and sun and cacti that my friend here speaks of i tried to persuade this last that we were a scientific expedition that had been sent hither by the english government to inspect sun and salt and cacti and send home returns thereon but he would not swallow this and set us down as harmless lunatics we were not a little laughed at too when we informed our friends that we intended to accomplish our journey with one horse each taking no remounts this was pronounced as impossible in this land of cheap horseflesh it is the universal custom to travel with a tropia four or even eight horses to each man a mare the madrina with a bell tinkling at her neck is also taken and all the spare horses follow her like sheep do the bell sheep as she leads the way it is only necessary to hobble the madrina when the party encamps for the night the troops of geldings can be left to graze at will for these animals will not stray far but keep near the lady with an affecting platonic tenderness this method of travelling by tropia is certainly by far the fastest the fashion here is to go at a full gallop leap from one horse to another as they in turn weary and get over about one hundred miles a day the south american caring little if he loads a few of his animals by the way we however preferred our own quieter mode of travelling which our experience in other lands has taught us was certainly possible one horse well looked after will carry a man for a journey of months at a very fair pace too the result proved that we were right for we reached later on lands where there were no pasture and where hard food for our horses had to be purchased at extravagant prices had we been travelling with thirty instead of four horses we should have found it rather expensive work many a long yarn was spun this night for our benefit by our revolvered friends on the dangers of our way they told us of the montañeros of santiago who would cut our throats and steal our horses of the salt deserts where we would perish of thirst deserts in whose midst two tropias had been known to meet and fight to the death for the little skin of water that was left to one party of the deadly cuchu or fever of the northern provinces of jiggers that would bring mortification to our toes and the bicho colorado that would lay eggs in our legs and so on about thirty miles from here is the estancia of las rosas the property of the well-known mr chemis whose horned cattle and horses are the pride of the plate an enterprising man who has introduced blood from england and whose horses carry all before them on the race courses of south america on the morning after our arrival at cañada de gomez we procured a trap and two horses and drove up to this estancia a pleasant drive it was too through the clear exhilarating air of the plains beneath our feet were flowers of every hue 
chief among which that commonest flower of the pampas, the scarlet verbena. The grasses hereabouts were long and of various species. All of them were now capped with plumes of silver seed, so that on the horizon the white stretches of it were exactly like the sands of a distant desert. We followed the tropia track to the north, which consisted merely of ruts made by huge wagons of the caravans that have for ages wended their slow way by this route. In places which are apt to be swampy in wet weather, the ruts become very deep, so that the wagons have to avoid them and make a slight circuit. Thus, new tracks are formed parallel to the old, till in some softer parts of the country the road is a band of a thousand ruts, a mile or so in breadth. Such are all the roads of the Pampas, roads to the construction of which man has contributed no labor. The pastures we crossed today were some of the richest of this province. Here you have a typical view of the camp as we saw it when we unharnessed our horses and allowed them a rest and a roll at midday. First, just before us stretched the muddy tropia track, a dark line through the bright grasses. Across it lay the huge, clumsy walnut wheel of a broken-down wagon. The bones of cattle were frequent, and a little further off we could see a crowd of mangy vultures feeding on the carcass of a horse. At the entrance to the numberless bizcacha holes, among the wild pumpkins sat, solemnly blinking, the gray owls, generally in twos, sociably. Why, by the by, does the bizcacha always plant pumpkins and owls at his door? Looking further away, we perceived on one side the silver stretch of a laguna a league or so off, with many cattle and horses by it, also numerous plover. The grass by it, not yellow and partly burnt as elsewhere, but of a vivid green. Beyond that, afar off, stretched the unbroken horizon of the plains, a long line of smoke rising from it in one place, showing where some leagues of camp were on fire. Turning round in the other direction, we could perceive some shy gamma, the deer of the pampas, playing under the shade of the solitary ombu. Beyond that, on the horizon, the waving sea of the mirage and two tall columns as of a waterspout dark against the bright sky, two dust whirls that broke and vanished as suddenly as they had arisen. A strange, solemn land, this lonely pampas, still too, save for the sound of the dry north wind sighing in the grass. At last we reached the wire fences and passed through the strong gates onto the lands of the great breeder of horses and drove up to the hospitable house. A pleasant place, this, and possessing what is very rare on the pampas, a garden of flowers and one of fruit and vegetables. The native estanciero is far too lazy a man to cultivate these. He breeds his cattle in his rough, brutal way, and yet, though he number them by thousands, Butter and milk are unknown luxuries in his house. He is content to eat his perpetual asado and puchero without vegetables or bread or seasoning, alfalfa and maize being the sole produce he condescends to raise from his estate. The locusts had been playing considerable havoc in Mr. Chemis's gardens of late. The peach trees stood stripped of all leaf and fruit, the stones alone hanging bare of flesh from the skeleton twigs. The blue gum trees and the prickly pears, of which the hedge around the garden was composed, had alone resisted the ravages of these destroying swarms. As the sunset, we perceived what is a common sight enough on the pampas in summer. All around the horizon, at five different points, 
were long bands of ruddy flame. These campfires sometimes burn and smolder on for months, devouring league after league of pasture. We had an opportunity of seeing how these fires are extinguished while we were in this neighborhood. The method is one which will illustrate, as much as anything, the value of horse flesh in this country. The peons of the estate, which we were visiting, perceived a fresh fire breaking out on the verge of their master's lands. Immediately they galloped off to it. There happened to be a troop of mares close by grazing tranquilly. In almost less time than it takes to describe it, two of these were lassoed, thrown on their backs, killed, and their stomachs ripped right up with a long knife every native carries. Lassos were attached to the legs of the animals, and the mounted men dragged the bleeding carcasses across the burning grass. And a very efficacious method it proved to be, for the conflagration was thus got under in a few minutes. On the morrow, we borrowed horses from Mr. Kimmis and galloped all over the country to see if any neighboring estancieros had horses fit for our expedition to sell us. We rode to the estancia of Les Tres Lagunas, then to that of Las Lomas, then that of California, where three brothers from central California were trying their fortunes, but all in vain. Save one tropia of unbroken young riscos from the Entre Rios camps, we could find nothing. So the next morning we drove back to Cañada de Gomez in our trap. It was a sultry day, heavy with storm. When we had about half completed our journey, the sky became overclouded and a vivid fork lighting flashed in the distance. The horses trembled. Their instinct evidently told them what was coming, for nothing is more terrible than a storm on the pampas. All animals, and man himself, are struck with terror when they find themselves overtaken on the unsheltered wilderness by these terrific tempests. The blast sweeps over these thousands of leagues of plain with force unchecked, meeting no obstacles of hill and dale to deflect and break its strength. The wind drives all before it, the vast herds of lowing cattle till they fall one on top of the other into the swollen rivers and are drowned. Clouds of dust are stirred up that make day as dark as night, and have been known to bury great herds, even as does the dreaded sandstorm of the Sahara. And the hailstones fall so large and with such force that they kill man and horse exposed to their fury, and, as I have myself seen, break through the tiled roofs of houses like so many round shot. But, curiously enough, where there comes but only a little and rare cultivation and civilization, the climate of a country changes. Of old, the dust storms used frequently to rush into Buenos Aires. Now it does so rarely and to a limited extent. And wonderful though this may seem, they tell me that the presence here in the wilds of Santa Fe of a few scattered estancias with their eucalypti has greatly contributed to break the fury of the desert tempest, and that to see it in all its horrible majesty, one must now go further out into the wilder region of the Pampas. For not only the Indians, but Drott and the hurricane itself, retreat before the advance of the white man. But the storm we experienced this day was quite enough for us. It came on with amazing suddenness. One moment it was hot, sultry, and calm. The next moment a wind of hurricane strength rushed down upon us, and we shivered with cold, so rapidly the temperature fell. The dust rose in clouds. The hurricane threatened to capsize our trap and roll it over the plain before it. We had to turn it to the wind and heave to, as it were, 
stooping down with our heads buried in our ponchos. Then the rain came down sharp and stinging, a rain of mud, for it gathered up all the dust from the skies as it descended. A rain, too, of sticks and stones and grass and millions of prickly thistleheads. This deluge luckily did not last long, and the fury of the short-lived tempest soon subsided. But it left us most miserable objects. We were drenched. An inch of mud covered our clothes as thickly studded with thistleheads as a plum pudding is with plums. And we were not sorry when we found ourselves once more under Schnack's hospitable roof. Not being able to purchase horses in this neighborhood, we took a train to the camp town of Fraile Muerto, which is in the province of Cordoba. Before reaching this place, we observed that the aspect of the Pampas was gradually changing, for we were nearing the region of the monte or bush, which stretches hence to the tropical forests of the north. The camps, no longer monotonous wastes of grass and thistles, were covered, save in some open patches, with mimosas and thorny bushes, commonest and most imposing among which rose the algarobas, noble tree of the mimosa species. The algaroba is a tree of great importance in South America. In the first place, it is used in place of coal on the railway engines, and its wood serves for sleepers. In the hot provinces of Santiago del Estero, it bears fruit every year, but here in the more temperate Cordoba, but once in four years. There is a large bean-like pod full of saccharine matter. It is excellent food for cattle, and horses, when hard work, thrive on it as well as on maize. Even human beings extract nourishment from the algaroba pod. The poor of Santiago almost entirely subsist on cakes made from it, and the children seem to be perpetually chewing the hard sweet seed in its raw state. An enterprising Frenchman attempted to prepare sugar from it, but failed to compete with the cane sugar of Tucuman. However, a very palatable spirit is extracted from it. The algaroba is of the same species as the locust tree of Cyprus and Asia Minor. On arriving at Fraile Muerto Station, which is some way from the settlement, we found that civilization had progressed so far that there were two coaches to meet us. The driver of one, a sharp Indian, pounced on us first, and claimed the caballeros as his own. We drove at a gallop across a plain of alternate pasture and brushwood, then over an iron bridge that spanned the Carcavanal, a typical river of the Pampas, flowing rapid and muddy between two steep, forty-feet-high banks of earth, glittering with particles of diamond-like mica, banks that were topped with evergreen mimosas, while the interspaces of the bush were full of lovely flowers and the lofty pampa grass with its plumes of silver feathers. Praile Muerto is a prosperous-looking little camp town. It, for the most part, consists of one big square with a double row of trees around it. Whenever a new pueblo is founded in South America, the native colonists commence by laying out an immense square. At first, it is a mere waste, with only three or four ranchos, maybe, scattered along its lines, while all around is the tiger-haunted jungle. The next thing they do is to cut a race course through this jungle, and then they sit down and rest. They have done enough. Let Providence do the rest. From this nucleus, a great city may spring, or it may not. Quien sabe? As a rule, it does not. 
but where there is much of the energetic foreign blood about, cities do spring up very rapidly indeed in South America. So it is with Fraile Muerto, which is fast becoming quite a considerable little village. The Spanish-American mind always seems to run in squares. His cities are built in cuadros all of a size. He even measures length by squares and speaks of so many cuadros where we should say so many dozen rods. The Portuguese-American prefers lines to squares and irregularity to symmetry. The network of streets in a Brazilian city is puzzling in the extreme. You do not find there the chessboard arrangement the Argentine people are so fond of. Again, when Brazilians found some new village in the interior, they prefer to make one long irregular street of it stretching along the high road. They do not understand concentration around a central square. At Faira Santa Ana, for instance, there is one street only, with no others branching off it. Yet this town is of considerable size, and the one street it does boast is, I am afraid to say, how many miles in length. There is a cafe at either end of it. If you breakfast at one and walk briskly to the other, you will reach it just in time for dinner, at least so the natives say. But the story seems hardly probable. I should like to see the man who performed this pedestrian feat, for there happens to be a tramway running all down this one-streeted town, and what Brazilian would walk ten yards when he could drive, or even when he couldn't? For in that case, he would remain in the end of the town he was born in, and decline to venture to the unknown further into the street. We drove into the courtyard of the Fonda of Dom Pepe. Our host came forth to meet us. Don Pepe is a great character in his way, a Roman of noble family, they say, and an ex-bandit of Calabria. He is a fine, handsome, white-haired old ruffin and a terrible swearer. His sister, a most stately Roman dame, assists him in preserving order in his, at times, rather noisy establishment. This lady rolls off the sonorous Spanish and blood-curdling Italian oaths as volubly as her brother. Fraile Muerto is associated with the fortunes of the ill-fated Henley colony. About twelve years since, there came hither from England a strange crew of young English gentlemen with the ostensible object of cattle farming. If energy and skill and cania drinking and horse racing are the sole requisites for a cattle farmer, then none could be better than these. These young men, unsteady, fresh from school and college and regiment, without any practical knowledge of anything, arrived at Rosario in a batch and considerably astonished the natives by their manners and customs. The Henleyites came down on the land in a fashion of a hostile army. They had a uniform of which a helmet was not the least conspicuous article. Each was provided with a regulation rifle, revolver, and saber, not to speak of the very arsenal of wonderful weapons he took on his own account in addition. They were in camp for some time in the village of wooden huts, while lands were being apportioned out to them. And here they soon showed what manner of colonists they were going to be. Drinking, gambling, and horse racing was the order of the day. The capital they had brought with them took unto itself wings, for let the gringo, however knowing in his own land, skin his eyes ere he match himself on the turf for the simplest gaucho of the pampas. So things went on, and the natives smiled at the ways of the locos ingleses, won their money, acquired their mortgage lands, while the colonists diminished woefully in number. 
Many of these gentlemen ultimately were driven to take any menial work they could get. Some died of delirium tremens, others self-dispatched with their own revolvers. The remainder settled down after the first wild burst was over with diminished means to the business they had come over to undertake. This prosperous little town of Fraile Muerto has been built for the most part on the spoils that have been wrung from the ill-fated Englishmen by publicans and usurers. Fiascos in the way of immigration are frequent out here and bring discredit on this fine country, whereas it is the folly or worse of people at home that is really to blame. There have been schemes of this nature in South America that have turned out far more unfortunately than even this one of poor, well-meaning, but misguided Mr. Henley, the Paraguayan-Lincolnshire farmer scheme, for instance. During our ride, I happened to see a navvy working on a remote portion of the Tucuman railway line. On my asking him the way, or some such question, he proved to be a fellow countryman. He rested his foot on his spade and started to chat with me. Right glad I am to have a chance of talking the old language now and again, he said. He told me that he had been a jockey in his youth, then a groom in London. And how came you out here? I asked. Oh, I came here as a Lincolnshire farmer, he replied with a humorous twitch about the corners of his mouth. As a Lincolnshire farmer? I don't quite understand. Ha <laughs> ha! Well, it do seem rum, don't it now? But that's right, a Lincolnshire farmer. Why, you know, I saw a grand emigration scheme advertised in the papers. Lincoln farmers to go out to Paraguay and grow tobacco on land that had been bought dirt cheap from the government. Splendid climate, and so on. Bueno, I did not know a rap where Paraguay was and didn't care, but I was main tired of town and times was bad, so I scraped some money together and off I went. And here I am, less of a Lincoln farmer than ever, I guess. But his case was light enough. The misery that wretched Lincoln farmer scheme brought on hundreds is inconceivable. In the first place, these immigrants, who were supposed to be experienced agriculturalists from the rich lowlands of East Anglia, were anything but that. Farmers, forsooth, no more so than and as useless in their own way as the young gentlemen of Henley Colony. Roughs from London, the off-scourings of the Dials in Whitechapel, rusty acrobats, race-meeting minstrels, and the like, not unaccompanied by a large following of dirty, noisy women and puny children. Well, this motley crowd was packed off a thousand miles inland to grow tobacco in the tropical climate of Paraguay. They reached the lands assigned to them, an uncleared jungle alternating with swamp. Here, as anyone could have foretold, fever fell on the miserable, uncared-for wretches, living as they could amid deadly miasma so helpless and ignorant that they could not even put their hands to building huts to cover them. So they perished by the dozens, the little children, weak with privation and fever, being literally devoured by mosquitoes and jiggers, till they died of putrefying sores. The remnant had to be sent south again by the exertions of private charity. And would it be believed the men of this melancholy relic, independent, helpless, surly British workmen as they were proved to be, refused to carry from the bakers the biscuit charity had provided for them and their starving families unless they were paid for doing so. Some of the specimens of the British working man one sees in South America 
are verily strange beasts and not calculated to do credit to their fatherland but there was one emigration scheme that i know of that beats all the others a particularly pestilential district in a state adjoining this one was the locality chosen the originators of the scheme were sleek godly men of the city of london who richly deserved to be brought out and delivered over to the tender mercies of those that had been deluded by their plausible prospectus. End of chapter 9